We resume our exposition in the Gospel of Mark today, even though, as Tim had mentioned earlier this morning, uh, the month of January is half over. What an encouraging thing. It's the 15th. Uh, but the new year is a new time. It's uh, For whatever reason, we turn the page on a calendar, and it's like we're starting over. It's something new. It's a good thing. It's kind of perplexing in a way. It's just another day. But it's a good day to get back into the body of Christ, to be back in a routine, and to be back studying His Word together. As we look at this passage, it's, it's, a, it's a pericope, which is a word for a story within a bigger story. And we're going to look at two very familiar events um, one very briefly and one more at length. Uh, what I want you to keep in mind when we look at this passage today is what inadequacy do you have? What insecurity do you have? What area of life do you feel you do not have the resources to make it work? As a single man or woman, a student, obviously the relational dynamics of that time are, are, are difficult, wonderful, powerful, but we feel inadequate when we're alone, when we're dating, when we're in or out of relationships. We feel inadequate, perhaps, in our work choice, our profession, uh, the, maybe for getting a degree or changing uh, careers. When you get married, uh, no one in this room who's married does not feel inadequate in their marriage. Uh, two sinners are now glued together forever. Oh, what joy this will be, right? And, and we learn how inadequate you are as men and women. And then you have children, and you hold those precious bundles, and boy, do you feel inadequate. How do you raise these little critters to uh, become responsible, to love you, to love one another, love Jesus, to make the right decisions and pass the ways in life? And then they become teenagers, and you get the challenge of being an inadequate parent to a teenager that knows everything. And then you send them off to college, maybe, or off to something, and on it goes. And as we get older, we face illnesses and diseases and losses and nets and gains and changes and blessings and all... And no matter where we are in life, there's probably a healthy, maybe even unhealthy, sense of inadequacy, insecurity. I don't know if I got what it takes to, right? Let's call that a hunger, just for this text today. That we've got a hunger for something we can't quite satisfy or satiate. And no matter how hard we work, resources we bring to it, we're going to feel inadequate as a father, as a husband, as a grandfather, as a grandmother. We're always going to have those inadequacies. So let's look at this text and see if we can uh, apply some of it to our lives. Now let's, let's talk about the Mark and Sandwich. In chapter 6, verse 7, if you have a Bible, you can see he summoned the twelve and he sent them out in pairs. And he sent them out to teach, to anoint, to heal, to preach the gospel. And then we have the long story of the beheading of John the Baptist, right? And then in chapter 6, verse 30 that Tim read for us earlier, the apostles gathered together with Jesus. So from chapter 6, verse 7 to chapter... 6 verse 30, we have the long story of John the Baptist and his beheading and the sad news. The sandwich is chapter 6 verse, verse 7 and chapter 6 verse 30. That's the piece of the bread around the story. That makes sense? So Mark, what he's doing here in chapter 6 verse 7, he sends them out, but we don't hear anything. We don't know what they did. Mark doesn't record that. Instead, he records the beheading of John the Baptist. And then when they're gathered back together, notice the verbs, verse 6-7, he summoned them to send them out. In chapter 6, verse 30, they gathered together. They were summoned and sent out, and they're gathered together. That's Mark's language of how he tells us the storyline. So it's like, meanwhile, back at the ranch, when they all came home, they were gathered together. But we get no report on what happened. Because God, when he superintended Mark to record this record, he did not want him to talk about the details of their ministry. He wanted them to know about the hinge 
of the beheading of John the Baptist. And then notice again verse 30 and following, reported to him all that they had done. That's all we learn. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. And they went away in a boat to a secluded place by themselves. Twice, they're to come away by themselves, twice to a secluded place. He knows they're tired. We've not heard the record of what they did. Now, we, from the other Gospels, we do have accounts of some of the things that they did. And the temptation for me is to go run see what they did. But Mark's not recording that. That's not his purpose. His purpose is to show us they went out and did what, he did, what God told them to do. A tragedy happens, meanwhile. They return in their summons, and Christ says, you know what, let's get away. You need a rest. And maybe this is the only so what you need to get today, is you need to come away to an isolated place and rest. And we've just come off a of Christmas break, and for some of us it might have been even a little longer than normal because of the way the holidays fell. But I'm not talking about uh, binge-watching Netflix. That's leisure. That's fine. I'm not talking about catching up on you know, those projects. I'm talking about rest with him. I want you to come away from the activity and let's go to a secluded place and rest. This is real simple, men and women. Do you have a place in the morning where you're doing this? Don't, don't turn, you know, I love this stuff. I use the technology for all my Bible study, word processing. I do it. It's, it's part of my fabric of life. When the technology breaks, I feel like I'm lost. In the morning, this is all I use. The moment I turn the tech on, it's gone. There's one email I got to address, and I never get back to it. Now, some of you are night people. God bless you. If you can do that at night, good power, more power to you. For me, if I don't do it in the morning, it never happens. And as soon as I get distracted from it, I never get back to it. Now, this isn't legalism. This isn't should or shouldn't. This is you get to. You have the opportunity. You have the freedom to do this. And here's the rub for most of us, especially if you're type A or a to-do list person. The rub for us is we think we're more effective by getting out of bed and going to work. Do you really think you're more effective by that to-do list and the type A stuff and email and all that? Or do you think sitting with this 10 minutes, 15, 20, 30, is going to make you less effective? You think you'll be less productive because you spend time with him? I don't want to shame you. I don't want to, I don't want to make you feel bad. I want to encourage you to tell you that Christ says to you, come away to an isolated place and rest. Not binge watch, that's leisure. Rest. God's Word. Just read it. Just pray a few. You don't have to be, don't compare yourself to somebody else. Don't compare yourself to a person that does it for four hours a day. Compare yourself to yourself. Are you spending time with His Word? And you might do this as a little experiment. Just do it for 90 days, 5, 10, 20 minutes every morning, and just see, are you any more or less productive? You just might find you're more efficient. You're better focused. You know, you get one sentence that hits you. Maybe this is the sentence that hits you. This is all you need to know. And you can sleep the rest of the sermon. Can you come away with him and rest with him? He loves you. He cares about them enough to say, let's get off the treadmill and rest. And we're not told the report. We're told, incidentally, that they told Jesus what happened. Like Jesus needed to know, right? But what he was concerned about was that they rest. Unfortunately, the best plans are interrupted. Right away, verse 33, the people saw them 
going, and many recognized and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. This is a, the crowd returns, the crush comes in, they're in the boat going across the northern part of the Galilee. This is probably the area called Bethsaida, Bethsaida, and it's on the northeastern part of the Sea of Galilee. And they're running from the hill, so it's a foot race picture. This is a walking world. You don't have horses and animals to ride in the first century Israel. You're on foot or on a boat. And so they're running a foot race because they see him on the hillside. Look, there's Jesus and the 12, and they're going down the boat. Let's go over there. And so the crowd crushes in, and Jesus is going to respond to them. His compassion, verse 34, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. This is an interesting glimpse because sometimes Jesus wants to get away from the crowds. Obviously, they're tired. Obviously, they had the bad news of the Baptist being killed. But for whatever reason, Christ had compassion and marked under God's ownership of his pen is telling him, you tell the story of Jesus having compassion on that crowd. Now, he calls them sheep without a shepherd. Now, we get this romantic picture of sheep. If you've worked with children in, in, in the learning center or whatever, and you glue little cotton balls on construction paper and pull them out, you know, and it's real cute and sweet and Elmer's glowing your fingers when you come home. Um, sheep, we should use moldy, musty, stinky, rancid cotton when we do that. Sheep stink. It's just that simple. If you ever go to Israel or you're around people that herd these animals, uh, they, they, I mean, you can smell them coming. There's nothing romantic about a flock of sheep in Israel. I love taking groups there and they go, oh, look at the sheep. And they all take pictures. It's like, oh, look at those pigs. Let's take pictures of smelly animals. You know, it's just ridiculous. But we have this romantic picture in our mind. They're anything but romantic. They're stupid. They're stubborn. And they're defenseless. And when their wool is heavy, they're unstable. And, you know, Jesus would have been far kinder to you and me in tongue-in-cheek if he'd call us chickens. Because <laughs> chickens are smart. Chickens have a little defense mechanism or two. They can get downright mean and nasty when the predator comes. Sheep are defenseless. And they're obstinate. And they stink to high heaven. So rub that Sunday school lesson off that you learned. And just picture yourself as a smelly person like me, okay? But he has compassion on them. And they're like sheep without a shepherd. Now, the word shepherd is also romantic. Someone that watches, protects them, has a, had a rod and a staff, and takes them beside still water and makes sure they graze in green grass. That's a good metaphor. What does Jesus do to shepherd these sheep? He teaches them. Shepherding and teaching are inseparable. The text says he taught them many things. Some of your Bibles render it a little differently. Literally, he taught them at length. So when Christ saw the masses, the multitude of sheep, and had compassion for them, and he makes it, the comment, they're like sheep that need a shepherd, the shepherd then steps in and teaches them at length about their issues. I think about this from a parenting standpoint. When you're trying to help your son or daughter learn a thing, you're shepherding them. You're teaching them how to read. You're teaching them to look a person in the eye when they shake their hand. You're teaching them to take initiative. You're teaching them to pick up your room, to do a chore, to be part of a family, to be a truth teller, to do your best in school. You're teaching them to find out their gifts and talents. And some are athletic, some are musical, some are, you know, they're bookish. They have different strengths. You're teaching them to exploit the way God's made them, right? And when you teach them and they become self-sufficient, you have accomplished something. You've shepherded them. And Christ is doing this in our spiritual lives. He teaches it at length that we might know 
uh, the kind of men and women we're supposed to be. Mark is the only one who records the motivation for Jesus doing this because he had compassion. And I don't think it's too far of a stretch to make this a so what application either. He cares about you. We sang about it. Tim reminded us when we sang. Um, I've shared this many, many times. I repeat myself, the older I get, forgive me, but uh, God's not mad at you. Even when you and I choose an obstinate path of sin, he's not angry. He's not mad at you and me because we fail the umpteenth time. Yes, he might bring discipline in our lives when we choose to sin and rebel. And, you know, but when we're apathetic, when we're off on our own, we're selfish, when we fill in the blank, he's not you know, kicking the can in heaven going, those dumb sheep, I can't stand them. He's got compassion on you and me. You know, we cobble together a picture of God based on our fathers and other authority figures in our life, whether you know that or not. Most of that information is not very helpful. Some of it is. If you had a great father, great grandfather, you're, you're a blessed person indeed. But some of us didn't have those relational pictures. If you do, great. If you don't, you have to reframe it from what the scripture tells us about your father. And here's a real good one. He has compassion. He loves you. He sees you with needs. He sees you defenseless. He sees you inadequate. He sees you fearful. He sees you stubborn. And he loves you. And he teaches you and me at length what we need to live this life. Well, he taught them many things. Uh, J.D. Jones writes it this way. It illustrates the wonderful love <clears throat> that never sought its own. It always forgot his own need and his own worries and sorrows to care for the burdens and sorrows of others. Well, it's getting late. Verse 35. The disciples come to him and say, The place is desolate and it's already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Um, you remember in uh, Lord of the Rings, the second breakfasts? And for, what about second breakfast? Well, think of this in Israel. Uh, there's there's uh, early evening and late evening. There's like first evening and second evening. First evening was 3 p.m. and second, late evening was 6 p.m. And in that community, and if you go to a developing country, you'll understand this, there's no way to, let's make a meal. I mean, Cindy and I, uh, food preparation has to be 30 minutes or less on, on average, Right? Because you don't want to slave in the kitchen for hours making a meal that your family is going to devour in three minutes. And then you're going to fight about who cleans the kitchen up and puts it in the dish. Right. That's, that's our routine. So we're all about quick meals, quick, healthy meals. Right. That's why we eat out so much, because it's quick, not healthy, but it's quick. It's easy. I don't have to prepare it. And first century around the world, developed countries, it takes a long time to prepare a basic meal. So if it's twilight, if it's three o'clock, that doesn't seem like late. But if you've got to walk a few miles to a village and either start preparing food back at home or you've got to go find a place to buy some bread, it's going to take some time to move thousands of people off that hillside back to their villages and home. So they're just being good stewards going, hey, it's, it's early evening. They need to get on here. And of course, we know the story too well. I have a friend in Texas. They would entertain quite often, and uh, when the guest stayed too long, he would come into his wife and say very loudly, Martha, I'm going to go put my pajamas on so these people know it's time for them to go home. <laughs> and that's the picture I have of the disciples right now. Jesus, it's already 3 o'clock. You need to get these people out of here because what? They're tired and irritable because these disciples have been there the whole time. Did you notice they got, didn't get any time to come away and rest? 
They're overtaken by the crowd. And Jesus is doing all the work. And if you've ever been around somebody else who's doing all the work, it's exhausting watching somebody else do all the work. It is. And they're exhausted and they're hungry and they're irritable. Let's get rid what are they really saying? Uh, get rid of them because we want to get something to eat as well. Well, Christ's comments, which are very limited, what we're seeing, if you have a red letter Bible, on what actually goes on out of the mouth of Christ in the record here, he says to them, verse 37, you give them to eat. It's an imperative plural command. We, we might paraphrase it this way. You feed them. Uh, and then they're all going to have this aghast look on their face. How in the world are we going to feed them? And then they go and explain. And this is logical. If we went and spent 200 denarii on bread, there wouldn't be enough, in other words. Now, I, I always hesitate. I used to do this years ago where I'd go back and do the calculations of what a denarii was in a common day's wage and what that would translate to today. It's, this is all phony money. It's just, it doesn't work. So it's better just to think of it in these terms. We talk about minimum wage. Think of a denarii as a daily wage. Doesn't matter what the amount was. That's what an average person got in an average day's work. And what he's saying is if we had 200 days of labor, eight months, we wouldn't have enough money to buy bread for this crowd. And Jesus responds back with another imperative command. You give them something to eat. And then he says, verse 38, how many loaves do you have? Go look. What do you got? Go look. And you can almost see the sheepish disciples looking in their pouches and carry-ons going, well, I didn't bring any Subway sandwiches with me. I ain't got my, no, no beef jerky here, no, no Nutri-Grain bar. What am I going to do? So they go into the crowd, obviously. And we know from the other gospel accounts, by the way, this is the first in the Mark record of an account that occurs in all four gospels, which is interesting. So you can read from different perspectives. But from the other gospel accounts, we realize a, a lad has come forward with the five loaves and two fish. And then uh, he's going to tell them to feed them. Now, in verse 38, he commands them to sit down on the green grass. We get a nice little uh, detail there. This has got to be between uh, early spring and early summer. Because as soon as the uh, hot sun hits in that area of Galilee, all the grass turns brown. It'll be brown most of the year. So we've got a little insight in Mark's detail there. It's springtime, and they're sitting. It's probably beautiful weather, in other words. And so when, when they get these five loaves and two fish, what do they do with them? It's not much. And Jesus tells them to have the groups recline in groups of 50 and 100. We're going to learn about why in a minute. And uh, he took and did four things. Now, there's four verbs I want you to see in your Bible. He blessed, he broke, he kept giving, and he divided. See him? He blessed, he broke, he kept giving, and he divided. The word blessing is eulogeo. We've talked about eulogy, euphemism, euphonium, a good sound, a good word. Okay, uh, Eulogeo is a good saying. Now, most of your Bibles, if you use the New American Standard Bible, which is the one that we like to teach from, you'll notice in verse 41, it says he blessed the food. And the words, the food, are in italics. This is one of the many reasons I still prefer the New American Standard Bible. Because when the words are in italics, it tells you the translators are putting it there to help you understand a context that you're going to miss. In other words, those words aren't in the original Greek New Testament language. They're added to smooth the reading. And the problem here is this is also interpretive, meaning they're suggesting something. And they miss it on this one with the italics word. So depending on what Bible you have, it might render differently. But he's not, he's not blessing the bread. What's he, who's he blessing? His father. The word eulogeo is to give thanks. 
It's to say a good word about something. Tim said earlier in our service about we thank God for our cars and our houses and the food that we have. We're blessing God for those things. We're not blessing the item and somehow by, you know, doing a gesture over it, it multiplies. So it's just a bit of a detail, but I think it's important. So he's blessing God. The object of blessing isn't the bread and the fish. The object of blessing is God. He blessed God. Mark 14, 22, while they were eating, he took bread and after a blessing... Now blessing the bread. After a blessing, he broke it and gave it and said, this is my body. So it's the same thing you see consistently the way it's explained. So he blesses God. By the way, at lunch today, I, I triple dog dare you. Not to say the same prayer you said the last 360 lunches. <laughs> and don't bless the food. Bless God for the food. Thank him that you have the money. The freedom, the resources. Don't you love it when those of you who have teenagers understand this better? They come into the house, they open the cabinets in the refrigerator full of food, and they say, What? There's nothing to eat. Don't you love that? You love it. It means that they don't have the one thing I want to eat, but there's plenty of food. I mean, how many of us? I love it when there's a threat of snow and the grocery store, we're like locusts. You know, the stores are emptied out. You know, we have enough canned goods and stuff in the refrigerator. We could probably go for two months, every one of us, without making a run. The now, we wouldn't necessarily love it, but we could probably do just fine with what we got in the cabinets, don't we? Do we stop and bless God for the, or the abundance that we have? The fact that you and I have a place to sleep, clean sheets on a bed, a car or two in the driveway, money in a bank, you go on a vacation, you can buy some new clothes if you need them. That's blessing God. We are, we are a fat, fat, blessed people. We don't, you know, comparison is the kiss of death of gratitude. And here we get a good reminder of blessing God. Well, then he says he broke the loaves, which is an image we're going to see throughout Christ's life. And then he kept giving. And that's the only hint we have of the miracle. We're not told how the miracle occurred. We're just told these four verbs. He blesses God. He broke the bread, the loaves, and he kept giving. So the miracle is occurring somehow at Christ's hands as he's distributing, as well as divided up the two fish. Now, again, we're not told how the miracle occurs. We're also told the same thing in Mark chapter 8, verse 6. We'll get to in a few weeks. We're at the feeding of the 4,000. They all ate and were satisfied. John chapter 6, verse 12 says they were all filled. Now, liberal scholars... Uh, can't uh, uh, acknowledge there might have been a real miracle. So what they say are a number of theories, so I'll just sort of congeal them. Some combination of, well, they saw this boy give his sack lunch, so to speak, and they all sort of said, well, gosh, that's really kind of shaming me, so I'll give my lunch too, and all of a sudden there's plenty of food. The other theory is that because this little boy ponied up his lunch, uh, other people just passed. Oh, I'm not going to eat. I'll just, in, here's my lunch too. And at the end, we have 12 baskets full. Now, these liberal scholars, they're, they're entitled to their opinion, wrong though it may be. Um, what they miss is just human nature. If you've ever gone to a wedding, and you've waited on the wedding party, and you've gone to the reception, it's a sit-down or a buffet meal or whatever, and you're, you can't, why can't this wedding party get those pictures done and get over here to the reception? I am, I am hungry. I've been here all day waiting for this meal. And you get in line, and it's like people have never eaten in their lives. I paid for a few weddings, and I can tell you, one wedding that I paid for, I didn't get like an egg roll. <laughs> By the time it was, it was for me to go eat, it was gone. I literally, it was gone. I was like, how much did I pay per head for these people to eat that lunch? <laughs> That's human nature. Human nature is to devour it. 
And the fact that we have 12 baskets full, we, we all know this. It's an obvious picture here, but it's one for each disciple. You give them meat. Go look. I got nothing. Here, this one kid gave me five loaves and two fish. All right, give it to me. And in the end, each one has a full basket as an illustration to them. Um, please note that it says in your Bible, 5,000 men, verse 44. Now, we live in an inclusive, tolerant, politically correct grammar world that uh, affects Bible translations. And um, not a commentary on whether it's right or wrong, but it affects it. The word is men. In the New Testament uh, vernacular, the word men meant man, not men and women. These were heads of households. And we know from the other four, the other three Gospels, all four including this, that it was besides women and children. This miracle isn't the feeding of the 5,000. It's the feeding of the 10, 15, or more thousand. We don't know. But what's important is the detail Mark gives us to sit in groups of 50s or 100. Because you can count them. And they can navigate their way through distributing the elements as to the congregation, if you will. So... It's not any more of a miracle to you if you believe Jesus can perform miracles. They could feed 5,000 people, 10, 15, 50,000 people, it doesn't matter. But what, what to me is important is the text is accurate. Now, think of these heads of households just to give you a frame of reference. In antiquity, if your brothers died, you took his, 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 your, his, your sister-in-law in your family and you cared for her and her children. You took care of your parents in their older years. So why are they sitting in groups of 50s or 100s? Because they're migratory areas from these villages where they live. It's like we all came from downtown Franklin within five blocks. We went to go see this event in a farm. Well, sit with the people you came with. So you see this community meal. And remember a few weeks, uh, months ago, Lloyd talked about the meal picture in a beautiful way. That the, the meal is an important part of, of life. We enjoy food together. We all get hungry. We all like to eat. We all enjoy talking around food and that experience of fellowship. And that's a picture we're getting here. Well, let's look at three so what's quickly. The first so what I think I've already stated, but as a reminder, Christ cares about you. Christ cares about you. He cares about your hunger. He cares about your inadequacy. He cares about your insecurity, your loneliness, your disease you're facing, cancer treatments, whatever. He cares about you. He cares about the losses you've been through. He sees you like sheep without a shepherd. Um, don't forget it. Don't live in a silo and think nobody cares because he has more compassion than you and I can measure. Uh, secondly, um, shepherding is inseparable from teaching. I mentioned this earlier. To shepherd someone is to teach them. Again, even in local churches, we have a picture of what elders or deacons or leaders are supposed to do to shepherd the flock. Well, they're supposed to care for me. Well, sure. Uh, you know, you get care and support if you have a baby, if you, have, if you go to a hospital, if you lose a child, if you lose a mate, if you bury someone you love. The Christian community will come around, hopefully, and, and they'll support you. Is that shepherding? Yes, but primarily shepherding in the New Testament is teaching. The one verb that is synonymous with Jesus' entire life and ministry is teaching. Because he's correcting and encouraging and instructing and enjoining and helping us to think differently and to think biblically, to think Christ-oriented as opposed to cosmos-oriented. So when we are shepherding the flock, we're teaching people what they need to know. Just like I talked earlier about teaching your kids certain things. I hope 
you, with younger children. I hope you're just having a blast teaching your kids about Daniel and the lion's den and Samson and David and Goliath and you know, Eglon and Ehud and these stories that they, they're going to learn from you. And you're having a blast doing it. And you're doing it well. You know, the cool thing about Christianity is we are in a constant mode of re-education because every generation has to learn what the last one learned. You don't get it when you come out of the utero. You've got to be taught. Just like a parent has to be taught how to take care of that baby when they're teething or colicky or a terrible tooth or they, they develop differently or they're not, you know, very coordinated or they're bookish or whatever. And you've got to figure out, how do I help this little person? You're teaching them. And everyone's different, isn't it? Isn't that amazing? You have three, four, five children in the same family and none of them learn the same way. None of them have the same interest. And you get the privilege of trying to teach them, figure out how they're wired, how to unlock the, the combination and help them with the thing they're gifted, wired. Or What do you think Christ is doing with you and me? He's teaching you. The corollary to this can be a little concerning. If you and I aren't learning and growing, what's happening? But that's back to the fact that he cares for us. He's not mad at us. He's, he's shepherding us. When he tells the disciples, you give them something to eat. Boy, what an what a upbraiding they must have felt like. What? We're just commenting, Lord, it's late. And these people, and by the way, I'm hungry. Did you, did you see that obvious one in verse 31? For there were so many people coming and going, they did not even have time to eat. We missed a little of the details. So I would argue they were hungry. And he's, you do it. You shepherd them. And third and last, um, and I'm going to invite the men and women to go ahead and start distributing the elements. And if the band would go ahead and come back as we'll conclude on the Lord's table. Uh, is With Christ, you're never going to lack resources. You'll never lack resources with Christ. We'll lack resources the way we measure it humanly, but we'll never lack resources with Christ. That hunger, that in insecurity, that inability that we all have with some subject in life, health, disease, relationship, whatever, right? That hunger drives us to the one who provides, the one who fulfills. I often speak of, you've heard me say this a hundred times, we, we think we're living in the, land, or in the land of the living, and when we die, we're going to the land of the dying. And it's just the opposite, right? We're in the land of the dying, going to the land of the living, right? If we know Christ. We'll really live when we cross that threshold. Now, for a moment, and you're saying to me, you can go ahead and distribute. Uh, for a moment, think about this, just as a sanctified imagination. You and I have insecurities, whatever, whatever it is now you got, you got it in front of your head. You're thinking about it, parenting, your teen, cancer treatments, divorce, whatever you're going through, finances. I feel inadequate, unable, insecure about my future. Now we're going to die. And we walk across that threshold, and there's a basket overflowing with the resources you lacked on the other side. You see, we're, we're, we're trying to find crumbs to feed our life, and Christ says, I've got a basket overflowing with parts that's more than sufficient for your entire life. And we live as though we're inadequate and insufficient, which we feel legitimately. But in Christ, he's saying, I've got every, I have everything you need to live this Christian life the way I intended you to live it. It's called by faith. So they come out of Israel, out of Egypt captivity, and they're given manna on the ground. King James called it hoarfrost, a little frost on the ground. Tasted like coriander and honey. And six out of seven days it was there, every morning. Now, sure, they got sick of eating manna. We read the stories about it. 
but there was a provision every day. They had water, manna, and the cloud. And the cloud did what? Sheltered the sun at, at day and provided some kind of heat at night. So they had water, manna, and God. He took everything else away from them. The meat, the leeks, the pots of food, the water in Egypt, took it all away from them and put them into the wilderness. And so when Passover is commemorated, they use unleavened bread even to this day to remind them of God's provision. Every day you have enough. Do you believe that? In Christ, you and I have all we need to live the life that he wants you and me to live. He has more than enough in his provision basket for you to live the life he wants you to live. Maybe not the way I want to live, not the pots of meat and leeks and so forth and so on, but I've got all the spiritual provisions. You do too. And as you commemorate these elements, we'll let you do it on your own. Just take a moment while Tim leads us in some worship. And between you and the Lord, remember his provision in the broken body of Jesus Christ. Remember his shed blood in that little sip of juice. He died in your place on your behalf instead of you to provide your entire spiritual life, to give you eternal life. And that's what you remember. Twelve baskets full. If there's 400 in this room, there's 400 full baskets commemorated in that little piece of bread, that little cup, in your place, on your behalf, instead of you. Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that uh, there is more in that basket than we understand. And we live as though we're hungry and famished and there's nothing to eat. When in fact you provided so much more than we can comprehend. Encourage us as we live a faithful journey to rest in your provisions. And we thank you in Christ's powerful name. Amen.